Welcome to Grace Abounds. I'm Pastor Jen Shaw, and this month we're doing something a bit different. I'll be answering the questions you send in. Questions about the Christian faith, the church, the Bible, anything you may have always wondered about but never asked. Email your questions to pastor at stjohnslutheran.church. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope these words build you up in faith, hope, and love. Before we get to that first question, I wanted to read the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, John 16 in particular, that speak a little bit, I think, to why do this, why do ask the pastor, why have these conversations, why seek to interpret the scriptures in life-giving ways, this life-giving word in fellowship together. And I think that is addressed in these words of Jesus during the Last Supper. He is preparing his disciples for what is to come, for his suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, at which point he is still with them, but with them in a different way than he was before, not in the flesh on earth, with them in a way that he is with us now, in the Holy Spirit, in his presence, in his meal, in his word, in his community, in so many wonderful ways. So this is what Jesus says to them as he is preparing them for the future ahead, and I would say preparing us. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. I believe that God still speaks. The Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives for new understandings and new ways of being in the world, um, and new relationships, always for good, always for God's glory, and most especially so that we may know and live the good news of life in Jesus Christ. So with that openness, I will dive into the first question of three questions. I love this question. What does God have beyond the universe? And I was talking with some people earlier about how I might answer that question. And certainly one option would be, um, (laughs) but maybe I should flesh that out a little bit more. Um, That is sort of the short answer to what does God have beyond the universe? I think it's a great question. I think it's fun to imagine. I think it's whatever it is, it is good and beautiful and great. I think, I, I don't know if this is the tenor of the question, but it brings to mind I think when we live in a world today where we can so beautifully see through like the Hubble telescope and the Webb telescope, I don't know if you've seen these like amazing far off galaxies and the photos and it's just, it just reminds me what an expansive and transcendent and beautiful and creative and big and wonderful God we serve. It also reminds me of Psalm 8 when we talk about the universe and what's beyond the universe which I think I might read a a part of because it speaks, I think, both to the transcendence, how big God is, and the eminence, how close God is. This is a God who created everything, including all those galaxies, and knows the number of hairs on your head, cares for you. This is Psalm 8, says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands, put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what does God have beyond the universe? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's fun to think about. But I will acknowledge, as uh, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord. My dad, who is home with the Lord, used to say, We cannot know the mind of God. And I agree. We cannot know the mind of God. God is so much bigger than that. But I would add... We can know the heart of God. I think we know the heart of God in Jesus Christ. We can know in our whole being, beyond intellectual knowledge, how much God loves us. Experiential knowledge, being of that relationship with God. So God is the God of this big, beautiful, inexplicable universe, and also the God who is very present to each one of us all the time. That is how I would answer, what does God have beyond the universe? This next question continues our theme in the third clause of the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead. What does that mean? He descended to the dead. So this is referring to, in the Apostles' Creed, the Creed has the three clauses, the three sections that are Trinitarian, We start by saying, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit. We talked last time how the Holy Spirit only gets, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit in the next question. But this is in that central statement of faith about Jesus Christ. And it refers to that time between when he was crucified and buried on that Friday and when he rose again on that Sunday morning, that Easter Sunday morning that we celebrate every Sunday and every day and all the time, the resurrection of Jesus. So what happened in between that time when Jesus was, the body of Jesus was in the tomb? I thought I might, it might be helpful to talk just a little bit about the Apostles' Creed itself because a lot of these questions are around that. It is a foundational confession of the Western Christian church, Roman Catholic and Protestant, that dates back to the 6th century or so, scholars believe. Traditionally, it's called the Apostles' Creed because it's believed to go all the way back to the 12 apostles, but it it likely emerged as this foundational confession over the very early centuries in the church. And just a note that it's not actually as widely used in the Eastern Christian tradition, Greek Orthodox Eastern Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, um, but it is a foundational confession in the Western Christian Church, which is why we say it together every week. So the particular phrase, he descended to the dead. Now, some of you may have heard it as he descended into 
hell. Had, had anybody heard it? That Yeah, some, some folks. And, and that is one of the ways in, in ancient translations, he descended into dead, he descended into hell. I think that comes from, and you'll hear me, I actually talk more about heaven and hell in our first service, so you can go back and listen to that one. But I think the dead or hell, I think that comes from the fact that hell, that word, as we use it today, generally speaking, does not appear in the Bible. <laughs> Someone's head just shot up. Uh, there is Gehenna that Jesus talks about that gets translated as hell. That was actually a dumpster fire outside of Jerusalem. And then there are the word in Hebrew that is Sheol, and the word in Greek that is Hades, which, which don't mean hell as they sometimes get translated. They just mean the place where everybody goes when they die. It's the place of the dead. You're not here anymore physically. You are in the place of the dead, whatever that means. We've loaded it with a lot of language by calling it hell, but in those traditions, it's just where you go when you die. So that's why you might hear he descended to hell, but we say he descended to the dead because that's kind of, I think, the more authentic meaning. But what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean that he descended to the dead? Well, most scholars think that it is referring to the idea of what's called the harrowing of hell. That after Jesus died on the cross, he went down to the place of the dead, Shaol, Hades, and he gathered all of the righteous dead, gathered all of the souls who lived and died on this earth before he came historically 2,000 years ago in the flesh, and brought them up into heaven. He took them from the place of the dead to the place of the living. He saved them. He rescued them. So this is one way to answer the question, which I have heard and perhaps you have as well. But what about all the people who lived and died before Jesus came? What, what happened to them? Well, he descended to the dead is one way understood that they were saved, that he went down and got them, that they were waiting for him, and he brought them up into heaven. So this isn't really found in the gospel accounts. Some people think it may be what Peter is referring to in a passage in 1 Peter that I'll read that might shed some light on this idea of Jesus descending to the dead to gather up the souls for heaven. So this is 1 Peter 3, beginning with verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the right the righteous and for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. So many people understand this in the creed to be talking about the salvation of Jesus brought to people who lived and died before he came in the flesh. And if that brings up more questions for you, I'm happy, I'm happy to welcome those as well. So one more question for this morning. 
If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, is the Holy Spirit still working in you? So I love this question. Again, this is a really great, really deep question. Once again, my short answer to this question is yes. So let me unpack that. The Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, is is the third person of the Trinity, personal. The Holy Spirit is God, one God, three persons. The Holy Spirit is, as the Nicene Creed states, the Lord, the giver of life. So this idea, this experience of the Spirit as the giver of life. So in both the Hebrew, the Hebrew word ruach, and the Greek word pneuma or pneuma, Those are the words for spirit. They also mean wind and breath. So in the creation account in Genesis 1, for example, Genesis 1-2, God's ruach, God's wind, God's spirit, God's breath, moved over the waters and God spoke and creation came into being. In the creation account in Genesis 2-7, God forms human beings out of the the dirt, the mud, the earth, and then breathes into them the breath of life, the, the ruach, the breath of life, and they become living beings. So just, just to clarify, that that is actually the Hebrew word mishnat in that context, that particular Genesis passage. But there is a really clear connection throughout Scripture between the breath of life and the spirit. Of life. So I would say, just as our breath sustains us in life, so the Holy Spirit sustains every human being in life. In other words, I don't believe we would exist if the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, was not in us, enlivening us, working through us, you know, being present in our lives. I just, I don't know how we. Any human being exists without the Spirit. So I would say, yes, the Spirit is working in every single human life. That's why we're alive. I would also add that throughout the Old Testament, before, again, the incarnation of Jesus, the Spirit is very active in people's lives. So here's one example. After Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and after, as Luke puts it, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness, and it is there that Jesus is tempted and overcomes temptation. He comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue, and he launches his public ministry by reading from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit who empowers and inspires us for ministry empowered and inspired Jesus for ministry. That's the spirit that he's going to go out and he's going to preach the good news. But he is quoting Isaiah, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before. So the prophet Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit has been around. The Holy Spirit has been working in human lives as long as there have been human lives, as long as there will be human lives. Now at this point... Some of you may be wondering, then why does Jesus talk about sending the Spirit? You know, Jesus says to his disciples, I will send the Spirit. We talked about last time the advocate, the paraclete, the one who will, as I read earlier, who will guide you in the truth, and you will be filled with the Spirit. 
and you will be empowered by the Spirit, and as Acts Acts puts it, you will be my witnesses throughout the world. So, So what does that mean? How can you both have the Holy Spirit just to be alive and then be filled with the Spirit to be empowered for ministry? So here's where maybe an object lesson from a children's message could help. (laughs) So here we have a balloon. And yes, I intentionally picked a balloon with stars on it. So we have this balloon. It is a balloon. I mean, it's it exists as a balloon, and it's got some air in it, right? And it's, it's created for a purpose, all of that. And yet, when it's not filled with breath, it's not completely serving the purpose for which it was intended. But when I fill it with breath, it becomes (laughs) more and more of what it was intended to be. And so I would say every human being has the spirit because the spirit is the spirit of life and, and any human being who has existed has existed. And as we are expandable, as we are open, as we are welcoming that breath, that spirit, that power of life in our lives to flow through us, we are becoming ever more and more the people that God intends for us to be. We have time. I'll circle back. I said I I picked the stars intentionally, and I'll end with this. It's a poem I wrote a long time ago. I thought about this poem in when I was talking about Psalms, Psalm 8 and the beauty of God's universe and how we are loved by God still. And this refers to a passage where Paul talks about we shine like stars as followers of Christ. So I'll, I'll end with the poem that sort of references back to all of the things that I've said earlier. It's called Stars. And it's based on experience I had years ago as a kid at the Griffith Observatory. So small I feel on the lawn of the observatory, a child who might become untethered from the earth and spin like a speck into the glorious lesser lights of the deep blue night. Who am I that God is mindful of me? And so I feel when I see God's world groaning. Who am I to reflect God's light? And yet we are told... We shine like stars in the world. We are called to be by the one who shines and makes all things new. Amen. Thanks for listening. Each week's episode is edited by Nick Cox. Music performed by our St. John's Worship Band. Sermons by me, Pastor Jen Shaw. Make sure to subscribe to hear each week's message. If you'd like to know more about St. John's mission to know Christ and make Christ known, to share the life-giving word and do the life-giving work of Jesus, visit our website, stjohnslutheran.church. May God bless you on this day and in all the days ahead.